You're listening to Brave New Space. I'm Robert. I'm Keegan. And we're going to share with you all things new space and beyond. Why we started this podcast. Brave New Space is about sharing insights and perspectives on the business and commerce of all things space to global investors and entrepreneurs. And we want to encourage more investors, entrepreneurs, and policymakers to consider participating in this space renaissance. So today we're going to talk about the upcoming IPO of Virgin Galactic. So Keegan, let's jump in on Virgin Galactic. For those who maybe are not as familiar with the story, it's technology that Sir Richard Branson of the Virgin Group licensed from scaled composites or some derivation of, of scaled. And scaled to what some people might know from back in the 80s was the company that built the Voyager that what was an aircraft that flew the first nonstop, I guess, flight around the flight around the globe. And they're known for using what is known as composite plastics in their aircraft, light, sturdy materials, sometimes a little difficult and maybe a bit of an art to to work with. And Bert Rattan, who's kind of a, a sort of a legend who is a legendary aircraft and now spacecraft designer, designed Spaceship One. And it flew to the edge of just just into suborbit, about just a little above a little suborbital hop, yeah, a suborbital hop, just above a hundred kilometers from sea level, or a little above sixty-two miles from sea level, and that was used to secure a win for the X Prize, and that was funded by Paul Allen. And I think it was just around the time of when they, in between maybe the the the, the two flights to win the X Prize in September and October two thousand four. Richard Branson's group licensed the technology. So you sort of saw in the last flight, the Virgin Galactic logo or, you know, or Virgin actually on the, on Spaceship One. So although that was never a, a commercial opportunity, Richard Branson believed that this technology could be extended to carry, you know, regular regular humans, non-professional astronauts to space. It's a little bit of background there on, on history. Keegan, do you want to fill in a little, a little, a little more about, about Virgin? Yeah, it's, uh, first of all, we have to, this, this is a story that is intimately tied to scaled composites. And I feel like we're kind of underselling how significant that group's role was in kind of normalizing the use of carbon fiber materials for the development of aircraft. So this was a fairly significant moment in the history of commercial aviation and commercial spaceflight. It was not just the first, you know, incident of proving the concept of space tourism. It was the first time a human had been sent into space for by an entirely commercial mission. It's worth mentioning that that was also the last time that a human was sent into space on an entirely commercial mission for the last 15 years and counting. So never let it be said that NASA is the only organization that has certain gaps in its resume for sending people into space. Certainly. And um, and it should be shared that, you know, Virgin Galactic has had a pretty long development cycle. You know, although it may have been a startup initially, it is certainly, you know, it's taken greater than a decade. And we're now just on the cusp of them actually having the capability to fly. Well, they've already flown, you know, test flight crew, but to flying revenue passengers, you know, we might actually see that in 2020. Yeah, they've had a couple of setbacks on top of just the, you know, standard back and forth of developing any new piece of technology. The biggest one was the 2014 crash in which one the first ever Spaceship 2 
had an had a some kind of problem during its uh, first test flight that resulted in, in you know its loss and not only the loss of the ship but the loss of the crew and that led to not only a design review which ended up uh, transitioning the spacecraft over to a point where it had a lot more steel and aluminum in its construction not just composites but ended up having to go over a lot of the safety features now it appears they resolved most of that and hopefully in 2020 they will finally be able to you know get where they've been going these you know last 16 years so Keegan want to maybe also just share a little bit about um, maybe their maybe the engine development through the program which is I think also it's important to share it's been an interesting thing to watch and we won't get too deep into the technical minutiae of this. But basically what it boils down to is when the very first Spaceship One was flown, it was using what is called a hybrid engine. Now, for those of you not too familiar with how rocketry works, normally you've had two choices to make an engine where your fuel is entirely solid, which is kind of like how a Roman candle or a firework works. That's what the side boosters on the space shuttle ran off of. Or you can do liquid propulsion, which is what most rockets that are going to space actually run on. Spaceship One flew on a hybrid design, which is when you have a solid tube, essentially, with a liquid oxidizer. That's the actual oxygen that causes the you know flame to actually go in a vacuum coming out the back end of it. And there are some advantages to all this. It's all about reducing complexity. But there's some economies of scale you run into when it comes to hybrid engines. They don't quite scale up to the degree you'd like. They're typically only used for what are called sounding rockets, which are usually only used for small-scale launches for universities and research projects that are only trying to explore the upper atmosphere with a very small payload. You could get away with it on Spaceship One just how for how small the vehicle was, but uh, Spaceship Two has had some considerable issues in its development because of that hybrid design. Yeah, and it looks like they they eventually did settle on going with a, a, a you know liquid propulsion after a long development cycle. Yeah, after a fashion, they finally went in the direction that they had to go, and that was probably the thing that cost them the most in terms of time. So much of their history from that point forward was really just banging their heads against against a wall to try to make the hybrid system work before having to go to a liquid system. And their justification wasn't entirely unfounded. At the time, liquid propulsion was just seen as being, you know, prohibitively expensive, too complicated. It was, you know, the idea with a hybrid system is that after each flight, you would literally pop the trunk and swap out your essentially swap out your engine for a new one after every flight that could be just one big solid hunk of a oh i used to know the chemical name but it was basically uh the same rubber they use in automotive tires (laughs) so their logic was not entirely unfounded but it ended up getting to a point where it was more trouble than it was worth certainly and you know a, a little dream that i that i had was a hypothetical and it's a bit of a tangent was that when X-Core was still around, which was uh, another suborbital company, now defunct company, also that was doing developments at the same place in the Mojave Air and Spaceport in Mojave, California. Literally two buildings down. Yeah, I had always thought too bad that, you know, X-Core couldn't have provided engine technology to to Mojave to, um, for Spaceship Two. But I always thought that maybe there were personalities and maybe egos that would not have ever allowed that discussion to go forward. Possibly, you know, it's really a difficult thing to really get into. And all these companies, uh, you know, any private business is going to have a degree of ego that will blind you from what might seem like a logical decision you can make down the line. So, you know, it's maybe unfair to levy that against either of those two companies, but it probably would have done both of them a massive favor 
if they could have had some kind of collaboration early on. Though the big thing that probably stopped all that was that they were both going after essentially the same market. So a collaboration would have inevitably turned into from collaboration to confederacy to eventual merger. And both companies had to have known that anytime that subject would have come up. At best, it would have forced uh, X-Core to totally change their business model. Yeah, I agree. Well, let's let's go to sort of current events regarding Virgin Galactic. Recently, they had announced that a special purpose acquisition company known as a SPAC was being created by um, a guy who's a he was a guy who was a former early employee at Facebook. And his name is Chamath Pali. I'm going to screw this up, but I'll do my best. Palihapitiya. Palihapitiya. And his investment company, Social Capital, Hedo Sophia Holdings Corp, had invested or was going to invest about $800 million for 49% stake in Virgin Galactic. And they were going to use the special purpose acquisition vehicle to... Um, Basically, take an existing public shell company and put Virgin Galactic in there. And eventually, that will hopefully allow public investors to purchase stock in Virgin Galactic. I think right now, the valuation for Virgin Galactic is about $1.5 billion. And recently, Boeing announced that they were investing $20 million into Virgin Galactic for a very small stake. And their interest wasn't not necessarily in the suborbital transport but into potential future development of some type of point-to-point supersonic travel, which I think is kind of a kind of an interesting thing. But I want to get into a bit on this IPO. Many have talked about that the new space sector needs kind of its Netscape moment and that we haven't really seen any big breakout. There's been really no IPOs of a, of a new space-related company. And although it's been alluded to about satellite companies, kind of the, some of these uh, smaller satellite companies going public, We've not yet seen one focus on sort of a manned space flight. And this could be the first one. And Virgin has done a great job with um, the deposits from individuals around the world. And I'm sure those individuals are really itching to actually fly. And they're going to be doing these flights out of uh, Las Cruces, New Mexico, where there's a specially built spaceport there that was designed by uh, Fosters and Partners, a very highly regarded architectural firm. So this IPO will be interesting. Still, a lot of the analysts are calling this a very speculative stock, and we're not making any recommendations on this podcast on whether one should or should not buy stock. They should always seek advice from their uh, their tax and legal counsel on that. But it's a certainly an interesting thing where you know they're they're suggesting they're you're, I think they're calling these essentially going to have civilian astronauts, and the FAA would classify them as spaceflight participants. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how the regulatory culture ends up having to adapt to all this, because there are definitely going to be challenges that we can't even really imagine just yet. But the Boeing investment is the one that really intrigues me about this going forward. Now, I've uh, suspected for a long time now that as Boeing and really U- the ULA alliance itself kind of continues to see its share of the market threatened by new up-and-comers like SpaceX and Blue, who are really leaning hard into the reusable sector, we were going to see Boeing try to at least develop some strategic partnerships with a lot of other new new startups that don't quite have the same resources of a, you know, Amazon or an Elon Musk behind them. And who knows if Virgin Galactic is indeed the first case of this. I think they certainly aren't going to be the last. But this is a really interesting thing to watch, especially for their justification, being that they're seeking to go into, you know, some kind of possible 
supersonic transport development with all this, because that might be a response to SpaceX saying they want to do Earth to Earth transport using the BFR. I don't know, Robert, does that seem like uh, reading the, do you think that's reading a little too much into the tea leaves there? Do you think that's a possibility we might be looking at? You know, I I actually, I would say, I don't think it's necessarily dependent on Elon. I would imagine since Richard Branson been in airline business for decades, he's probably always thought about it. And I'm sure seeing the Concorde grounded was probably, uh, you know, sad. And, and, and I think there's a lot of people who would like to see supersonic flight made available again, despite some of its maybe technical issues. But there is uh, definitely more investment going in, in into that area. So I'm not sure if, if Branson, the Virgin Group's, you know, decision to take Boeing's money was at all kind of affected by kind of, you know, point-to-point travel that SpaceX has alluded to. But maybe we could talk a little about maybe some of the uh, unit economics with, um, you know, Virgin Galactic. I mean, they're talking about being able to carry five passengers a flight. So at, at a quarter of a million dollars a person, that's about $1.25 million of revenue per flight. And according to a, um, a Virgin Galactic investor presentation, their fuel costs on, on this is per flight run $121,000. Customer lodging and training, and I'd be very interested to see like what that looks like. One hundred ninety-three thousand dollars. So let's take the training out. Like that's a pretty big lodging bill. Mm. And then they have other flight costs, one hundred eighteen thousand. Right. So just just taking that, you're, you're, they're just talking about a sixty-five percent net profit margin of eight hundred eighteen thousand dollars per flight. Not bad, but it's not taking into a lot of corporate overhead, which must have been extensive to the buildup to to where they're at today. Yeah, I don't think we're ever really going to learn what that number actually is. We're probably going to get one that they can credibly back up, but the timeline for how long that was going on is going to be, you know, is probably going to be very selectively chosen. But even if it wasn't, just from the amount of R&D that has had to go into it, it's just been a long time coming in a lot a lot of information has no doubt gotten lost in all that. What's going to be interesting to see is not necessarily the over, the corporate overhead costs, not even necessarily the launch overhead, the launch costs themselves. It's going to be the overhaul and maintenance costs of the spacecraft, because that's something we don't really know a lot about just yet. They've done uh, the spaceship one and spaceship two showed a high degree of survivability because they don't really since they're coming in on suborbital flights, they're not really coming in as hot as like space shuttle is. They're just not gaining nearly as much speed. But now that they're on a liquid propulsion system that has all those additional complexities and that they'll be making these flights fairly regularly, we really got to start wondering, like, what's the flight overhead cost really going to look like in terms of continuous repair and maintenance of the spacecraft? And and, and I think ideally they want to have, they, they're trying to create a, you know, they are building a factory in Mojave and they want to be operating these spacecraft in different parts of the world. And there are... You know, there are numerous attempts of uh, and discussions around building spaceports, usually sometimes with uh, um, an existing runway that would work well for either a vertical takeoff or landing or kind of an airplane style rocket plane mm-hmm. such as uh, Virgin Virgin. Because remember, Virgin is a it's, – it's actually a two-part system. They have a it's, – it's an air launch. They have an aircraft that carries spaceship two it releases it and then once uh, you know some distance away from the airplane it then fires its rocket motor to go to space and this isn't new technology in that sense that was all being pioneered as far back as the bell x1 and chuck yeager's first supersonic flight yeah and then uh x15 right 
Yep, the X15, uh, technically the X1, the X2, the X15 series, there were some little test vehicles that were kind of mini shuttles. They didn't, most of those didn't actually, you know, launch, but they did fly like that. And even the very first space shuttle actually did a, not an air launch so much as an air fall. They had it riding on top of a 747 and they let it go so that it could go in and test uh, if it could indeed glide to a landing. So again, air launch is not really new technology. It's just never been used for anything other than purely experimental test vehicles. Yeah, so th- so it's it's there's going to be a lot of uh, a big learning curve in terms of the maintenance, repair, and operations regarding uh, repeatable suborbital flight. But looking at like you know back to, so, uh, back to the business part, the market market size is it's vast. I mean, look, there's there's approximately two million people in the world with a net worth of, of ten million dollars or more, and Virgin claims that they oh, they need to fly about a thousand people a year for a viable business. And if I remember, and that's that's a tenth of a that's a tenth of one percent of the two million people who could potentially afford it. And if I remember correctly, they actually broke a thousand pre-orders inside of only a couple of years when they first started putting them out, something like around 2004, 2005 for all this. And that was when they did not have a product. So the market, you're absolutely right, Robert, the market is definitely there. And I don't think they're going to have any trouble at least being able to hit, hit that thousand a year mark, especially if they start seriously considering the, you know, some kind of use case where they either, you know, make some kind of moderate change to the design of Spaceship Two to be able to use it as a supersonic transport system for Earth to Earth flight, and then also how many of those original passengers are going to sign up to want to fly when Spaceship Two is flying in other locations? Because remember, when you when you're flying out of Las Cruces, New Mexico, you're going you know you know about 100 kilometers above sea level, and you're not going to see the entire Earth. You will see a portion of uh, you know the New Mexico area. I, I'm, I'm guessing you might be able to see maybe into Texas, maybe part of New Mexico. So it'll be somewhat a little bit, you know, in it, probably an amazing view, but still sort of limited in terms of what you would be able to see from an orbital flight. So there might be some individuals that will purely just want to, you know, fly out of uh, maybe a spaceport in the Middle East, fly out of one in Europe to get different vantage points. And then there's also commercial use cases. I think they're talking about, you know, doing some live or recorded music events. I think they're talking about putting like some bands in Spaceship Two and having some type of performance or music video in space. There is a certain amount of science that you can conduct in a suborbital flight so they can, you know, essentially, you know, a company could charter their flight or an organization such as NASA for a suborbital flight research. So there are other potential revenue streams that Virgin Galactic, I'm sure, is uh, is taking into account. Yeah, if they play it right, it, they essentially offer a platform that it was that's kind of just a more advanced version of the Vomit Comet, except privately o- operated and a lot easier to get relatively small experimental packages into space. You know, potentially uh, multiple times in the same day. So yeah, it opens and they definitely have some interesting opportunities for beyond the purely tourism driven side of things. We haven't even started talking about, you know, what movies they're going to try to sh- shoot inside this thing when they try, they try to shoehorn in a zero gravity scene inside a rel- you know a cockpit not much bigger than a private jet. Yep. And for those who might actually be interested in doing a little more research on, you know, purchasing shares when it's going to be able, be available the Social Capitals SPAC, SPAC, it is actually already trading under the initials IPOA, IPOA. 
And, you know, it's going to be interesting to watch kind of, you know, both how they perform as a company and stock. And sometimes they're not necessarily always the same things. I imagine, and this is just a pure guesstimate, I have, I'm, I'm not a stock analyst, but I can imagine that it's going to definitely get yield. They're going to do some type of splashy, you know, there'll be something splashy once Virgin is, Virgin Galactic is, is certainly part of it. And I can imagine the stock, you know, gaining a little bit. But again, it's very speculative. You know, they're not flying people yet. There's still a lot more work that needs to be done in terms on the operations. And this is this is a new market. So I do applaud that Richard Branson and his investors have had the grit to stick through an extremely long uh, development cycle. And there's and there's certainly plenty of naysayers out there. So it, it's a it's a it's a challenging market. But Branson wants to eventually be taking you know not just thousands but millions of people to space. And I'm and I'm and I imagine that his vision is extends beyond just suborbital flights. Certainly, I mean there was a. Uh... <laughs> Going way, way back to when Rutan was first talking about what the future of this, you know, kind of platform could be, there was talk of of a spaceship three, you know, being something that would be closer to the size of the shuttle. So I don't know if that's something they still want to experiment with, but who knows? It's uh, it's certainly an exciting future for Virgin Galactic right now. Hi, listener. My new book, Space is Open for Business, is coming out soon, and I want you to get a sneak preview of it. Head on over to my website, robertjacobson.com. For a first look. Thank you for listening to Brave New Space. This is Robert and Keegan. On the next episode of Brave New Space, we'll be having Marshall Culpepper on to talk about some of the more underserved verticals of the space industry. Mm-hmm.